Well, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? I hope that you uh, think we could leave right now, have a word of prayer, and go home and be full and uh, rejoice that uh, what God has done in our hearts. If we truly grab a hold of what those songs and, and the message of those songs are in our hearts and our lives. Just a couple of things this morning before we begin. Uh, next Sunday, we are having here in the church, here in the auditorium, we're having a meeting uh, for, uh, for men that would like to be part of or are part of a program called Every Man a Warrior. And they're gonna be, we're going to have a representative here uh, from that company and, and uh, that ministry. And he's going to explain to us what that program is. And we've had uh, dozens of men in our church that have either gone through that program or are going through that program. And if you would be interested in being part of that small group, we would love to have you come and just find out some information about it. And uh, that is next Sunday from 3 to 5 right here in the auditorium. And so if you have any questions, please come see us. Um, and if you'd like to be part of that, we'd ask you to come and just uh, uh, take up the information and find out what, uh, what is going on in that program. And then just a prayer request. Um, yesterday, Paul Hamaker's mother passed away. And uh, so we are asking prayer for the family and as they go through the difficulty of that situation of that time. So if you would just keep the Hamaker family in your prayers, and uh, give, ask God for grace for them. Number 41. That was the number they gave me. On Monday, I walked into a room and, and they, said, uh, they said, Christopher Cox? I said, yes. They said, number 41, remember that number. And they had started at number one and they had gone all the way through number 45. At the end of that time, the lady that was in the front of the room giving us our numbers, she said, I need number one through number 45 to follow me. A couple of weeks ago, probably a month ago, I received a letter in the mail. It's a letter we all look forward to receiving, and that is our jury summons. I was number 41. But I think that number is going to stick with me the rest of my life, and here's why. We walked up into that courtroom, and I've been selected for jury duty once before in my life, but never had to serve on a jury, and so I didn't really know how this thing went. And they took us all up into the courtroom, and she told us to stand in the hallway, and we stood in the hallway. And she said, number one through number 24, I need you to follow me. The rest of you, please stay in the hallway. So being 41, I stood there in the hallway as one through 24 went through the door into the courtroom. She came back out after a couple of minutes, and then she said, the rest of you, please come and sit in the gallery and wait. We walked into the courtroom, and my first time really ever being in a courtroom, and I walked in, and I sat in the gallery, and I looked up, and there's, on the left side of the courtroom was the jury box. Seated in front of me was a table that had, the, had some attorneys, I could tell, Table to the right had some attorneys, and then they had these, uh, there were a couple of assistants that were in the room, and um, everybody was standing, and so I stood. And in comes the judge, and the bailiff says, all rise for the honorable judge. And the judge came in, sat down, he said, you may be seated. We all sat. 
And the judge began to talk to the jury, and he said, I'm going to introduce to you the people in the room. And for me, I didn't think that this is how it worked. I thought that you'd go in and uh, some room you go into and the uh, attorneys and the judge or somebody's there and talks with you and explains to you what the process is and the whole thing. And so the judge, he came and he said, uh, the people sitting here on my right, that is the prosecuting attorney and gave his name and his assistance and a police officer that was there. He then went over to the next table and he said, just to the right of them are the defense attorneys. And he gave their names. And he said, sitting in between the defense attorneys is Mr. Shaddix. Doesn't mean anything to me. Then he went to the people that were sitting around the room. These are my assistants and court reporter, court recorder and so on, the bailiff. And he said, now I'm going to tell you what Mr. Shaddix is here for. Mr. Shaddix, it is alleged that he has committed murder. In my heart, in my, in my body, I kind of sucked a little wind because I've never, as far as I know, sat in a room with somebody who is alleged to have committed murder. And he said, not only has Mr. Shaddix, and he listed the murder charge, he listed the um, felonious, uh, uh, assault, aggravated assault, and then um, child endangerment. And he said, not only has Mr. Shaddix uh, been arrested for murder, but it is the murder of an eight-month-old baby. And in the room, the jury and everybody else just did what you did. Groaned, sucked wind. And I sat there and I looked at that man and in my heart, I said, how could you do that? How could you? The judge then began a three-hour process of talking to the jury and telling them that under the Constitution of the United States, Mr. Shaddix is innocent until proven guilty. Just because Mr. Shaddix is sitting here and has been arrested for the murder of an eight-month-old baby does not make Mr. Shaddix guilty. And he spent three hours talking to the jury, going over with them, questioning them, talking to them one by one, asking them, can you begin this trial with the premise that Mr. Shaddix is innocent? There were ten that could not do that. There was a lady there that had just had a grandbaby, and she said, I do not think that I could sit here and listen to the things that that man did to that baby and be able to honestly say, I will look at him as innocent and judge the information that you give us to determine whether he is guilty. 10 were eliminated, 10 came in. And he began the questioning of those 10 all over again. After he was done, the prosecuting attorney got up and he spent about an hour 
drilling into those jurors that this man, Mr. Shaddix, is innocent until proven guilty. If we do not do our job, you must deliver a non-guilty charge. You have to. It is the foundation of our country. He is innocent until proven guilty, and he sat down after about an hour, and then the defense attorney got up. And she began to talk to different jurors, and you could tell from all of my experience of watching police dramas, I could tell what she was doing. She's picking out the jurors that she had possible question, possible problem with, and she asked this question, which I thought was the most brilliant question. I think we're done now. Uh, the, The most brilliant question of the day. She said, juror number two, if you had to go back to deliberation right now, and you sat in that room as the jurors, and you had to come to a charge, what would you say this man's charge is? Juror number two sat there and thought for a moment. And juror number two said, I think that I could not tell you what the charge would be because you have not given me information. And if we had a raising of hands in here this morning, most of you would say, I agree with that statement. And the defense, attor- the defense attorney said, that is the wrong answer. The right answer is, if you had to go and deliberate right now, you would have to come back with a not guilty charge because you have heard no evidence that says that that man is guilty. That is the prejudice that is in your mind. And my mind blew. And at that point, I looked at Mr. Shaddix in a completely different light. I do not know if Mr. Shaddix did anything to that baby. I am purely judging him based upon the police arrest and what I've heard in the news. That is the only thing. I have seen no evidence. I haven't heard anybody give up, get up and give any evidence. I am just judging him and saying to him, how dare you do that to a child? And I began to think, Isn't that our culture today? Isn't that us guilty until proven innocent? Guilty? Don't we look at our spouses and they're guilty? Don't we look at our children and they're guilty? Don't we look at our coworkers and they're guilty until they prove to us that we're innocent? All you have to do is pick up the newspaper, look online and see what the headlines are. And you see a culture that says you are guilty until you prove yourself innocent. But that is not the foundation of which this country was built. This country was built on a foundation that you are innocent until proven guilty. And we would all want that benefit should we stand before a judge ourselves. And so I began thinking, what is the Christian's response 
in a culture like this in which we live? Is it our job to condemn guilt on those that we see? Is it when we hear something in the news that all of a sudden that person is guilty and they have to prove their innocence? Or is it that us as Christians are called to a higher standard? Is there something that the Word of God says that we are supposed to guide our lives by? Is there a way that we as Christians are supposed to rise above the fray of society and not live like them, but live by a higher standard that God calls us to? Or are we just supposed to live as society and live looking at every person we come across that does something to us, that we hear something about, that we see something in the news, and automatically judge and jury condemn them guilty? Or is there something better? Is there a way that you and I can live that helps us to represent Jesus Christ to the world in which we live? After all, isn't that what we're called to? Aren't we called to represent Christ to the world around us? And that includes our families. That includes our co-workers. That includes that store clerk, that one that bags our groceries, that one that is in the gas station, that one that we do business with. We as Christians are called to represent Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? And this morning, I want you to follow along with me, and I hope your fingers are limbered up because we're going to go through the Word of God, and we're going to run through a story because there's something at the end that I want you to see. So if you take your Bibles and you will turn to Genesis chapter number 41, Genesis chapter number 41, the end of that chapter, we're going to look at a man by the name of Joseph. And we're going to see from Joseph's life that there is a way that Christians not only live as Christ has called us, but we impact the world around us. We do not need Christians just to walk through life unseen and unknown by the society in which we live. We need Christians who will impact and change culture, change life. And so we're going to look at Joseph today, and I want you to start out in just verse number 46. And it says, and Joseph was 30 years old. Joseph was 30 years old. The last time that we see that Joseph's, we see Joseph's age was in chapter 37 in verse number 2, and it says Joseph was 17 years old. So between chapter number 37 and chapter number 41, verse number 40, we see Joseph has aged 13 years. And a lot has happened to Joseph in 13 years. Have you ever had a period of time in your life when it seems like it has been an eternity the stuff that has happened to you, the problems that you have faced, the difficulty that you've gone through, the situations in your family, the situations at work, the moves, the, all of the things that you, and you look back and you go, wow, it has only been 13 years. It seems like a lifetime that this has gone on. And Joseph has had a lifetime of experiences that have gone on in these 13 years. But I want you to see this. In verse number 51, Joseph is now married. He is now out of prison. 
He is now second in command of Egypt, and Joseph is going to have a baby. And there's nothing like having a baby. The joy that it brings. And oftentimes, we look at the names of our kids, and sometimes it's a name that we've thought of all of our lives. Sometimes it's a name that we just pop in our head. When Rebecca and I named our kids, we made, it, we made a choice that she was going to pick the first name and I was going to pick the second name. And so she thought for nine months, she may have thought for nine years what the baby's name is going to be. If it's a girl, it's going to be this. If it's a boy, it's going to be this. And she's thinking and she's thinking and she's thinking and she's like, I got the names. I got the first name. What's the middle name? I'm like, I don't know. I need to see the baby. But what are you going to call? I don't know. I need to see the baby before I come up with a name. And so she's got this name, and we know the first name. It's Juliana. What's the middle name? I don't know. Let's, let's get this baby out. Let's, let's, let, me, let me see the baby. So we have the baby, and all of a sudden, it's like Rose. There it is, Rose, Juliana Rose. Lacey, got Lacey's name. What's Lacey's middle name? I don't know. Let me see the baby. Hold the baby. Morgan. There you go. Where'd you come up with that? I don't know. Just saw the baby. That's what I thought. Morgan. Sometimes we put a lot of thought into it. Sometimes we don't. But I want you to see, Joseph has been through 13 years of trial, 13 years of difficulty, 13 years of prison, 13 years of abuse, 13 years of being lied about, 13 years of sold, 13 years of memories, 13 years of problems. And so what did he name his kids? In verse 51, and Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God hath made me forget. Verse 52, and the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. My kids, every time I call my son's name, it's going to remind me that God is a good God. And I'm not keeping lists. People that keep lists have a hard time seeing God work. This morning, don't keep lists of the wrongs that things that have been done to you. Don't keep lists of the problems and difficulties that people have brought into your life. Don't keep lists of the things that you look at and say, that's not fair. Look at the, get rid of those lists and begin to name things and begin to see that God is working through your life and God is blessing you and God is making you fruitful. And so he named his kids. Manasseh and Ephraim. And in chapter number 42, Joseph or Jacob uh, was going through a famine in, in the land of Canaan and he decided to send his boys to go to Egypt and get some food for us, buy some food and bring it back. And in verse number seven of chapter number 42, it says, And Joseph saw his brethren and he knew them. Immediately when he saw them, he knew them. And you look down at verse number eight, and Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him, knew not him. And verse number nine, and Joseph remembered. And oh, how we can remember. You ever see that person that you thought, I hope I never see that person again in my life. And you have forgotten about them until that class reunion. 
that family reunion. Shopping in the store that you said, I'm never going to shop in that store because I know that they work there. And you go into that store and you see that person and you remember. You smell that smell. What is that smell? It's from your childhood. And it instantly brings back the memories and you're surrounded with all of the thoughts of that time. And Joseph remembered, but I want you to see, Joseph did not remember the bad things. Look at verse number nine. It says, and Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. And Joseph began in his mind to begin to play out this event, and he was going to play with his brothers just a little bit. And he threw them in prison for three days. And the Bible doesn't tell us why he put him in prison, but he put them in prison and he held them, and then he brought them out. And I want you to notice in verse number 24, it says, And he turned himself about from them and wept. Why did Joseph weep here? I want you to draw your attention to verse number 21 because the brothers tell us why Joseph wept. And they said one to another, these are the brothers talking one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore, is this distress come upon us? Verse 23, and they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. So the brothers are talking and they're saying, this problem is coming on us because of what we did to our brother Joseph 13 years ago. And Joseph wept because for 13 years, those brothers have been carrying that guilt, carrying that stress in their life, carrying that weight that they were never intended to carry. And Joseph wept because he had something that if those brothers would get it, that pressure would be released. That stress that they've been carrying, that weight that, they would, that they've been carrying would be gone if they would just get what Joseph had. And Joseph wept. And Joseph, in, verse, in chapter number 42, the rest of it, he sent his brothers on their way. Chapter 43, he told them, he said, I'm going to hold Manasseh, and, and I want you to, uh, to go home and get your brother. You say you have a younger brother, and you say you have a father. I want you to go get your brother, and I want you to bring him back here, and then I will, I'll believe that you're not spies. So in, verse, in chapter number 43, they go and they tell Dad, this is what the story is, and we need to take our brother back. In verse number 29, it says, And he lifted up his eyes. So this is Joseph. The brothers have returned to Egypt, and they have Benjamin with them. And Joseph, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. For the first time, he's seen his true blood brother. All the other brothers are stepbrothers, but now this is his blood brother. And Joseph made haste, at verse number 30, for his bowels did yearn upon his, to, on his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Grace welled up in Joseph's soul, and, and Joseph was now beginning to become overwhelmed with all the grace that had been bestowed upon him. But Joseph was not ready yet to reveal himself. If you look at chapter number 44, in verse 18, it says, Then Judah came near. Now Joseph was interested in this because he wanted to see, did have his brothers really changed? 
And don't we want to see and don't we wonder that person that was so mean to us so long ago, have they really changed? Have they, have something happened to them? Has their life been different? And Judah came close to Joseph and he began to speak through an interpreter to Joseph. And Joseph was listening to what Judah had to say. But the reason that this is so important is if you go back to chapter number 37 and verse number 26, it is Judah who suggested that they sell Joseph. Judah is the one who had no emotion, who had no feeling, who had no heart for Joseph. And Joseph wanted to know, has my brother changed? Sam Moffat, missionary in Korea, he made this statement. He said, if I have no forgiveness, then I have no message at all. As a Christian, if we have no forgiveness, if we have no grace, we have no message. If we can't look at people and say, we forgive them, we give grace to you, that is the basis of our Christianity, that God who looked at us, who deemed us unworthy, sent his son to die on the cross for our sin when we did not deserve it. But yet, he gave it to us. And Joseph, after hearing what Judah had to say in chapter number 45, says that Joseph, verse number one, could not refrain himself before all of them that stood by. And he cried and caused every man to go out from him. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. Joseph had to give his brothers that which he had received, grace and forgiveness. You see, Joseph had lived his life, had filled his life with grace, that when his brothers came that deserved nothing but judgment, and Joseph was in the position to give judgment, he could not help but give grace. And the reason he could do this is if you look at verse number five, it says, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves. Take the pressure off of yourself. Don't be grieved. Don't get upset about this. Don't be mad at yourself. Don't turn the pressure onto you. He said, let me tell you why. Ye sold me hither, but God did send me. You think you sold me into slavery. That's not how it happened. God sent me. You think in your life that people are doing things to you. That's not what God is doing. God is allowing things to happen to you to make you into something, to put you in a position where God needs you to be. Verse number six. This is for these two for these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earring or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So that now, so now it was not you that sent me, but God. Joseph operated his life with a divine perspective. But let me tell you this morning, that is just the introduction. And don't think it's going to take a lot longer. Because I want you to see, this is what I want you to see today. 
This is the part that if we can get this, if we as Christians can get this, we will impact our society in such a way that grace will flow. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter number 32. Genesis chapter number 32. Why is it that Joseph, after going through all of these problems, all of these difficulties, all of the things that happened in his life, why could he demonstrate grace? Isn't it easier to see things, to do things that we have seen done? Isn't it easier to demonstrate grace and forgiveness to other people if it has been demonstrated and given to us? In Genesis chapter number 32, verse number one, it says, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Eden. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee and four hundred men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The last time that Jacob saw Esau, Jacob had just swindled him out of his birthright. And Jacob had gone with the blessing, with the birthright, and he ran. And Esau, now seething in all of this deceit, had a choice. You see Jacob here, he sought grace. He sought grace. He wanted grace. But there's a choice. Do we give grace or do we give what people deserve? In verse number 33, I'm sorry, in chapter number 33, in verse number 1, it says, And Jacob lift up his eyes and look, and behold, Esau came and with him 400 men. So here's Esau. I haven't seen my brother in years. Last time I saw him, I did awful things to him. And now here he comes with 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost and Leah and her children after. And Rachel and Joseph hindermost. Esau is coming with 400 men. Jacob says, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to put my wives and their kids together. So servants and their kids, his first wife and her kids. And then lastly, Joseph. And Joseph is watching intently as to what's going on. He's heard the stories. Yeah, me and your uncle, we don't, we don't get along well anymore. I did some things that I shouldn't have done. I treated him a way that I shouldn't have treated him. But I am hoping that we can reconcile this relationship. And Joseph is watching what's going to happen. In verse number 3 in 
he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground. So this is Jacob bowing to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. You see, I believe that Joseph was able to demonstrate grace and forgiveness because he had seen such grace and forgiveness demonstrated years before. How is our world ever going to come to the place where we as a society live as Christ has challenged us to live, giving grace and giving forgiveness? We have to change how we act. Mom and dad, you want your children to demonstrate grace and forgiveness to their siblings? You must demonstrate grace and forgiveness to your children and to your spouse. You want your co-workers to demonstrate grace and forgiveness to those who they work with? You must demonstrate grace and forgiveness to the co-workers that you have. It is so easy for our temper to be at the surface and it takes a little spark and all of a sudden we are up in arms. I don't know where you stand on the whole Supreme Court issue, and it doesn't matter. But just saying that, some of you just got anxious in your soul. But there was a statement that was made this week to, to Senator Mitchell. I'm sorry, McConnell. A person asked him, do you even have a soul? And are we supposed to operate our lives assuming the worst of people or assuming the best? We are called to live in the stream of God's grace. As a Christian, we have to live in the stream of God's grace. Remember what God has done for you and pass that along. Remember how God forgave you. How many of us in this room would say, I deserve to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. I deserve Christ to come and die on the cross for me. I deserve that. Not one hand in the room. Because we understand we don't deserve it. And as a Christian, do the people around us always deserve grace? Absolutely not. But we must give what we have received. Thirdly, we have, or second, we have to remember the humanity of the other person. When you are dealing with somebody, remember the humanity of that person. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for that person just like he did for you. That is a child of God. That is a creation of God on that across the table from you, across the counter from you, across the car from you, across the house from you. That is a child of God, and we must remember the humanity of that person. And we must surrender our rights. Why do we stand up and why do we fight? Because of my rights. My rights. I must surrender my rights. In the early 1920s, there was a man by the name of Adolf Dossler. And he had a brother, his name was Rudolf Dossler. And Adolf and Rudolf 
Their dad was a cobbler, and so they took up the trade, and in the 1920s, they began in their mother's laundry room, began to make shoes. And they became very successful at making shoes in their community, but they had grander vision and grander dreams of seeing something done than just making shoes amongst their little town. They worked and they worked to perfect the shoes and eventually they made spikes. And in 1936, they asked a man by the name of Jesse Owens if he would wear their shoes when he ran in the Olympics. And Jesse Owens won four gold medals that year wearing Adolf and Rudolph Dossler's shoes. Success came. And my, how life changes when success comes the pressures that come from a success. And so the brothers began to argue and bicker a little bit. They began to fight and they began, things that really shouldn't have been issues became issues. And one day as they, they lived in Germany, they, the, uh, the, their town that they were in was being bombed. And one brother was down in the bomb shelter that they had made already. And the other brother came down and it was cramped in there. And when the brother came in, he said, oh, those stupid uh, I forget the terminology, but stupid something, uh, are, are here again. And the brother that said it was not speaking to the brother that heard it, but the brother that heard it thought he was speaking to him, and that divided them even more. After the, after the war, they went back to their hometown, and they began to work again, and success just came naturally to them. But the problem was that in 1939, they became so upset with each other that they divided everything that they had built in half. Adolf took half of the employees and Rudolf took half of the employees. Adolf took half of the money and Rudolf took half of the money. And one set up shop on one side of the river and the other set up shop on the other side of the river and they began to grow their own companies. Adolf, rather than calling his shoes, or Rudolf, rather than calling his shoes, Dossler shoes, which they had been known by, Adolf called his shoes by his first name and his last name, Adi Das, Adidas. And he started a company called Adidas, and Rudolf started a company called, using his first name and last name, Ruda. But that didn't catch on, so they later named that company Puma. And that was the beginning of two large corporations, Adidas and Puma. 1949 was the last time that Rudolph and Adolf spoke to each other. In 1974, Adolf passed away. In 1978, Rudolph passed away, having never spoken to each other since 1939. When one was buried in the cemetery, the other one, when he, before he died, he said, I want to be buried as far away from my brother as possible. They are in the same cemetery, but furthest points in that cemetery as they could possibly get. Their bitterness and their anger had welled up inside of them that they could not come to a resolution. Their bitterness did not only impact them, their bitterness impacted the entire city that they lived in because the city became known as the city of crooked necks. Because when you would walk into town or you would walk home or you would walk to a store, you would look first at the shoes the person was wearing. If they were not wearing, if you were, worked for Adidas and they were wearing Puma, you could not speak to them. You could not marry across company lines. 
There were stores that could only serve Adidas and there were stores that could only serve Puma. And the conflict did not just impact the Dostler family, the conflict impacted the entire community. And you would think that once Adolf and Rudolf passed away that the conflict would go away, but the conflict lasted over six decades. And it wasn't until 2009 that the companies who had been feuding for so long looked at each other and said, what are we fighting about? And they played a soccer game and reconciled the companies six decades later. This morning I ask you, what are we fighting about? What is it that we are so angry with people about that we set aside our Christianity and our Christ-likeness to pick up arms and to fight? Who is it in your life that God has brought to your mind, the Holy Spirit has brought to your heart and said, why are you fighting with that person? Why has this argument going on so long? Why can you not get past this conflict? Why can't you show grace? And it's time that we as Christians begin to operate and live our lives as Christ has called us to do, to lift high the standard, to lift high the grace that he has given to us. This morning, who in your life do you need to go to and give grace? Who in your life do you need to go to to seek forgiveness? You see, if we do that, if we begin to live as Christ would have us, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't matter whether you're for or against Kavanaugh. It doesn't matter who you voted for during the last election. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter. What matters is, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know the greatest grace giver ever? His name is Jesus Christ. And we don't deserve it, but he will freely give it. This morning, do you need that grace? Do you need that grace from Jesus Christ that came and died on the cross for you? Do you need that grace to forgive you of your sins? Do you need that grace so you can spend eternity with God? This morning, you can receive that. Do you have somebody in your life that you need to show grace to? somebody that you need to seek forgiveness of, not allow, not they need to seek forgiveness from you, but you need to go to them and say, we have got to get this right. Maybe it's somebody in this room this morning. Maybe before you walk out that doors, you need to reach somebody and get to them and say, I need your forgiveness. And if the church would get right, our community could get right. And then we could sit 
in that gallery, in that jury room, and I could look at Zachary and say, he needs grace. He needs grace. God's grace and our grace.